Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Afternoon, Jim. Great to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand podcast. Packed agenda. I think I say that every single time we start this pod, uh, but it's always true. The six things I've got on my list, which we won't get through, are Irish employment data, always of interest to our listeners. We've had some news from the German economy which was weaker than expected. And this flies in the face of a raft of data that have come out really since Christmas, suggesting that things are better than expected uh, around the world. So this is the first or one of the first big uh, disappointing revisions to that story. Switching to politics, geopolitics, there's a story again out of Germany by coincidence from Der Spiegel about China supplying arms in particular drones, to Russia, which if it's confirmed, um, there's no reason to doubt it at the moment, but it hasn't been confirmed from any other sources, and Der Spiegel hasn't revealed its sources, it's extremely worrying, and I suspect massively consequential. And I think we should mention that a little bit. Going back to the economics, we've had today some rather disappointing news on US inflation, and that is a continuation of the recent trend in inflation data out of the States in particular. And the story there, it's proving to be sticky following the falls in inflation that we saw last year, the disinflation, if you like. We seem to be settling at levels that are still too high, and in particular, too high for central bank comfort, telling a story or reinforcing the story that we've been telling for a little while now that 
mind your eye on interest rate rises, particularly in the States, but also in the Eurozone. I know you wanted last time to talk about the Irish Central Bank Governor, Gabriel Malouf and what he had to say, Irish economic statistics and the way in which they're reported well and the way in which they're not reported so well. So I think we should try and make some space for you to talk about that. If there's time, and there won't probably be, I would like to talk a little bit about the Northern Irish Protocol again. I know your eyes glaze over whenever I talk about Northern Ireland, Jim, but it is very important. It is massively consequential for Ireland and the United Kingdom. And we know that it's a mess. And if we get time, I'd like to explain why it is such a mess at the moment as we speak. It's not hopeless. There is some speculation that we're going to get a deal over the weekend. And some news has just been published precisely in that regard. So I would like to touch on that. But let's start with the latest data out of Ireland. And I think in particular, you wanted to talk about some jobs data. One of the stories, or the remarkable stories out of Ireland over the last couple of years has been the performance of the labour market. Uh, we ended last year with an unemployment rate of just 4.4%, which is virtually full employment. And uh, yesterday we got the other side of unemployment data, which is employment. And in the at the end of December, there was 2 million 574,500 people employed in the Irish economy. That's 68,600 or 2.7% up on the same period last year. And I guess more significantly, it is the highest level of employment that we've ever achieved in this country. So the labour market performance, you know, continues to be remarkable. And looking at the sectoral breakdown, um, you know, manufacturing industry, construction, the wholesale and retail sector, accommodation, and food services, all delivered positive year-on-year growth. Um, the one area that we will be watching closely, uh, given what's happening globally, that is the ICT sector, technology. And at the end of December, there was 164,600 people uh, officially working in ICT. Um, and that represented a decline of 2,200 on the same period last year. So, uh, you know, we're seeing some of the job losses starting to be reflected in those data. Uh, but in the overall scheme of things, the decline there has been far outweighed by strong growth in most other sectors of the economy. So it's a good news story. And um I think anecdotally, it certainly doesn't come as a surprise to me because it's clear out there that the labour market is still very hot. And even within technology, I've mentioned before, um, a lot of people that are being let go in that sector, I pick up from recruitment agencies that they are being picked up by other sectors that have struggled to hire technology workers in up in competition with the global tech companies over the last couple of years. So um, it's a good news story, Chris, full stop. Jim, a question has literally just occurred to me when you're talking about that, because when you were talk, talking through the stats, you're, you're becoming known, by the way, in Irish economic circles as the guy that reads out the shipping <laughs> forecast. <laughs> Sounds like it, doesn't it? But that's a different story. Um, I like I like a juicy statistic, Chris. Absolutely. Num you're the numbers guy. But when you're talking about Irish jobs numbers in, in aggregate and at the various sector level, 
you could have dropped the word Ireland and just replaced it with any one of a number of countries. You could have been describing the US labour market there. Obviously, the numbers would be different, but the narrative, the story would be exactly the same. It's very similar in the UK. Obviously, there are domestic nuances and differences, but they're noticeable by their absence rather than there being very, very strong domestic influences on these numbers. And I wondered the extent to which the world economy now is being dominated by very large companies, companies that really don't have a domestic location in any meaningful way. They are genuinely global companies. To what extent should we be looking at domestic economies and just talking about the world economy? And whenever we talk about the world economy, we say whatever is happening there is going to be happening here, where here is wherever we happen to be sitting, in our cases, Ireland and uh, Britain. It really is an economic situation that, is inc- that despite all the deglobalization talk, is dominated by a relatively small number of very large companies. Yeah, that is absolutely the case, Chris. Um, the, you know, you, Ireland in many ways is a proxy, a proxy, excuse me, for what happens in the United States. And we've spoken about the corporation tax buoyancy over the last few years. And that is reflecting, I guess, what's happening global, well, tech earnings in the United States. Um, and likewise, on the employment front, you know, the, the fortunes of those companies, the big companies uh, dominated by U.S. companies uh, is very much reflected in the labor market performance here. So it, it is very definitely a much more globalized economy. And I suppose the, the, that's good in one sense. But the risk, of course, is and it's one we've spoken about it is the concentration risk here, you know, the fact that 10 uh, significant multinational companies dominate over uh, 55% of Irish corporate tax revenues. The fact that there's over 301,000 workers, at least last October, employed in the multinational sector. And, and of course, you can't look at those numbers in isolation because uh, those jobs in the multinational sector um, create a huge number of jobs across the rest of the economy. And indeed, on the tax revenue front, you know, you can't just look at the corporation tax growth that's coming from these multinational company performance. You also see that being reflected in the income tax take because a lot of the higher earner workers who pay most income tax in this country are employed by multinationals. So a shock there would reverberate through the income tax take. And of course, uh, those workers and those companies drive a lot of spending in the economy also. So that is heavily dependent. So all of these issues are interrelated. But I think you're correct. You know, it's it's a global story rather than a domestic story. I'm just looking at some Irish population statistics here. How many did you say? Two, two and a half million jobs? 2,574,500. That wasn't that different from the entire population of Ireland when we were alive, Jim, in the 1960s. That's correct. Absolutely, Chris. And um, as you know, the population in April of last year in the census hit 5.1 million, which is the highest population we've had since uh, the Great Famine in the early 60s when we were alive, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. Um, You know, we roughly had a population, I think, of about 2.1, 2.0 million in the economy. I think it might have been a bit more than that, but basically... Was it? Okay, well, it's close enough anyway. Very rough. I don't want to disagree with Mr. Shipping forecast. No, no, I'm I'm trying to remember. Maybe it was about 2.3 million people was Uh, the ballpark. It's roughly doubled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think Mm. sometimes it's it's good to remind ourselves of, of how much things have changed 
in Ireland and in other places over the course of the last 50 or 60 years, half a lifetime, we hope. The reasons for that, why Ireland, back then when Irish population was about half what it is now, roughly, Ireland's biggest export, you talk about exports being the driving force behind a lot of economic activity in Ireland, not the only one, of high-tech goods, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, and all the rest of it. Back then, over half, well over half of Irish exports actually was live cattle. It's an extraordinary story. And it's all down to a whole host of circumstances and things and policies. Uh, economic policy started with T.K. Whitaker in 1958. That, that was the start of this. And a whole host of other decisions, a whole host of other policies, what the IDA got up to. Um, that's a very important factor. And just pure chance, luck, chance, oh, yeah. circumstance, being in the right well, place at the right time. The, the, the one thing you exclude there, I mean, you mentioned Ken Whitaker, but uh, Sean Lamass the teacher mm. at the time, he was absolutely instrumental as well. And, and it just shows that during periods when you get inspirational political leadership, um, you can achieve lots of different things. Lamassa's son-in-law, Charlie Hawhey, um, who his reputation has been seriously tarnished by lots of other issues. But the one thing Hawhey certainly had was a, um, he had vision, you know, Temple oh, Bar, so the International Financial Services Centre. So political visionaries are required. And that's that's one thing that does kind of worry me at the moment. Here in this country, we don't have political visionaries, I think. Um, you certainly don't have them in the United Kingdom. And indeed, in the United States, they're pretty scarce as well. And I, and I guess globally, there's not too many visionary political leaders out there. Well, political pygmies, political Neanderthals might be doing a disservice to Neanderthals. We're talking about UK politicians at the moment. I won't go off on one Don't about Chris. that. Yeah, you're right. Charlie Hoy, his reputation has been trashed for all sorts of reasons. Uh, he, but the IFSC in particular was an inspired decision. And if you look at where that, that where the, the IFSC was located, I'm not sure it physically exists as an entity anymore, but down down on the river there, um, just on the north side of the Liffey, near Connolly Station. And when I first knew, I remember the first building going up there and it being a, a, a essentially derelict from there to what is now the, the bridge, the Eastlink Bridge. And yeah, Chris, that's been I, completely I, filled in now, isn't it? With, with, yeah. with modern high-rise-ish buildings. I worked in that building. Uh, it was the AIB building that, yeah, that was the first one. Yeah. Customs House. I worked there. Um, just after AIB moved in there for a year. And I remember in November evenings particularly, and that's what I remember because it gets dark around four o'clock or thereabouts. And if you look out the back window of that AIB building down along the side of the Keys, you would see cars driving into the wasteland, a load of kids jumping out. And suddenly in within a couple of minutes, there's a big orange glow in the sky as the car has been burned out. You know, it was total, total dereliction down there um i walked down through it earlier this week and um you know such a difference although the ifsc as an entity you know is 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 very different now but as a physical location there's just so much stuff down there now and um, as you, as you know jim i worked there too uh, a little yeah. bit after you not not that long and i think we moved into the second building of what was then the ifsc La La Touche Touche House. House. Yeah. yes and um, on that very first day, I remember it very well, one of the women in the office was mugged on the steps of the building. And there was a pub across the road. It's still there, but under a different name now. But it used to be called, I think, the Master Mariner. Oh, yeah. And the, a sign went up in the window of that pub on the very first day yeah. that we moved in. No suits. 
Yeah. Different times, eh? Anyway, we have yeah. we have digressed and taken up far too much time with with a, with a nostalgia fest. Um, tell us about German GDP, Jim, and, and why that's so worrying. Uh, yeah, well, Chris, we, we we have discussed ad nauseum in recent months um, the European Central Bank's interest rate policy, and uh, you know we've we've discussed how typically when there's excess demand in an economy, inflation takes off, and central banks increase interest rates to bring it back under control because it dampens consumer spending, it dampens business investment spending, and it brings demand in back into line with supply and inflation uh, should, in theory, moderate. And that's what central bankers typically try to achieve. But the European Central Bank has been increasing interest rates aggressively, 0 to 3% so far since last July, another half percent promised in March, with possibly more to come thereafter. So the European Central Bank is pursuing a very, very aggressive interest rate policy. Uh, but you have argued, and I have argued, that um, the one thing the Eurozone economy is not characterized by is excess demand. Okay. And we got an example of that this morning with the revision to fourth quarter growth for Germany. Initially, it was reported as having contracted by 0.2% during the quarter. This was revised to a contraction of 0.4%. And within that, domestic demand very, very weak. Um, consumption was down by, um, I think, 1.1%. Uh, construction investment down by 2.9%. Investment in machinery and equipment down by 3.6%. So these are elements of domestic demand. And certainly those elements of domestic demand in Europe's biggest economy are certainly not and have not been shown signs of overheating. And I think it's pretty much the same throughout most of the euro area. So you, you just question what the European Central Bank is doing on the interest rate front. Yes, I agree. And I've agreed with this for a long time. Uh, it contrasts with the United States, where there appears to be reasonably strong domestic demand, a stronger consumer anyway, in the United States compared to large swathes of continental Europe. And we got some Inflation news out today that was on the disappointing side, again, from the United States. The theme of sticky inflation on the way down is still with us. This is something called the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditure Deflator. Is that right, Jim? That's correct, yeah. And that came in stronger than expected, particularly at something called the core level, which is something that the Federal Reserve, the central bank, looks at. And I'm sure you're going to give me the exact numbers in a minute, but it's the story that I'm interested in, which is one of uh, higher inflation than expected. And that is part of a trend, as I say, and that has led money markets in the United States to push yields upwards, particularly at the short end. Two-year um, interest rates are up again in the United States, and they're a good bellwether for what's going on. That tells you what the market helps to tell you what the market is expecting for U.S. interest rates. Equity markets have responded in the way that you would have forecast given that news, and they've gone down so far anyway today. They've been quite weak this week uh, on the back of similar news. So I think that we're still in trouble in the United States on the inflation front. We're still in trouble, on the, therefore, on the interest rate front, because expectations for US interest rates almost daily now just ratchet a little bit upwards every day. Uh, the, the thing that we need to do, though, is take a step back from this and ask a very fundamental question, Jim. And I'll put it to you. 
which is that we do know that at some point, if inflation is to come down, interest rates have to go up. And we, we know all of that. But it's the connection between interest rates and inflation that interests me. It's because that we know that there is a lag. The doyen of monetarists, Milton Friedman, God rest his soul, told us that there are long and variable lags, emphasis on variable here, between putting up interest rates and what happens to inflation ultimately. And knowing that, without knowing the exact gap, there must come a point where interest rate rises stop uh, and they wait then for inflation to do its thing um, with a lag. And therefore, if you follow that logic through, if you continue to raise interest rates until inflation peaks, you risk doing far too much. You risk killing the real economy. You risk over-tightening monetary policy. How much do you think of a risk we are running on both sides of the Atlantic of doing precisely that? And the reason why I ask the question is that the rhetoric that we're getting on both sides of the Atlantic suggests that they, when they talk about being data dependent, they are going, going to um, uh, do precisely that, going to wait for inflation to turn before stopping raising interest rates. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember seeing research a few years back from the European Central Bank suggesting that the full transmission impact of an interest rate change can take up to 12 months. Okay, yeah. so we're, 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 we're using interest rate policy at the moment to, I guess, address um, conditions that will exist six to 12 months down the road. So uh, there's a significant lag there. In Europe, as we've just been discussing, uh, you know, there's clearly not excess demand in the system, yet interest rates rising strongly. So you, you would suspect that in the next six months, there will be a significant slowdown in the Eurozone economy. Uh, the United States is a little bit different than that because there is definitely um, an indication of strong consumer behavior. Uh, you mentioned the personal consumption expenditure um, measure of inflation, which is the Federal Reserve's favorite measure, that's up by 5.4%. And, and within that, um, the goods component, 4.7%, but that's down from 5.1%. And this is, the, I think, the kernel point that the services component has jumped from 54 to 5.7%. And that's where we're seeing a lot of stickiness on the inflation front at the moment on the services side. Uh, we got the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, which is, um, as the name suggests, a measure of consumer confidence in Michigan. 
Um, it has reached the highest level since January of 22. And we also got personal spending for January increased by 1.8%. So I would have more sympathy with what the US Federal Reserve is doing on the interest rate front than the European Central Bank. And um, I, I think the Federal Reserve is probably more adept at calling it in time than the European Central Bank will be. But uh, yeah, we are running significant monetary policy risks at the moment. There's no doubt about that, given uh, the time lag that we've discussed. But central bankers said in Jackson Hole, Wyoming last August um, at that gathering that they stand ready to do whatever it takes to prevent inflation from becoming embedded in the system. If that means recession, if that means higher unemployment, so be it. I go back to my point that what we're saying here is that, that if they were doing a good, well-calibrated job, they would stop raising interest rates yep. before inflation peaks, given yes. the lags between yes. policy and outcomes. But if they're going to wait for inflation to emphatically come down before stopping raising interest rates, I think they do run the risk of making a big mistake. It's a tough job. They have my, I'm glad I'm not doing it. But I do think that they, they run the risk of to coin a phrase, breaking something in the economy, if not the economy itself. And as you know, Jim, my favorite candidate for what breaks, I don't know. I don't think anybody does, actually. Um, as we saw in the UK last year, you can get some really weird corners of the financial market blowing up, breaking. In this particular case in the UK, it was the pension fund market, normally the most boring corner of financial markets that you could possibly imagine. But if you wanted to ask me, uh, you haven't, but I'll tell you the answer anyway. What is my favourite candidate for the thing that will break if they do too much? It'll be the property market. Property, yeah, absolutely. And there are sort of straws in the wind around the world that that is actually happening. They're only that, um, but it's looking like it's come off the top in the United States, United Kingdom, maybe bits of Australia, maybe bits of Canada. Less so Ireland, I believe. But there, that's if there is an accident this year, or going into next caused by interest rates going up too much. I'll give you my candidate uh, for a problem area, and that is uh, residential and commercial property. And on commercial property, straws in the wind again, um, there are a few defaults going on on the west coast of the United States in the commercial property market, um, which is very interesting, a little bit worrying, not excessively so, but again, very worth keeping an eye on. If you think that there is trouble building anywhere, I think it is in property. That's enough of that. Uh, one of the things that I know that you wanted to talk about was the central bank governor's uh, interview or comments recorded in the Financial Times this week about, this, about Irish, the Irish economy, how it's reported and how it's discussed. And it's already produced a reaction from some American, well-known American economists. What did you make of it all? The reason why I really want to talk about this again briefly, Chris, because I think China and Russia is, is really important, but I get a lot of comments on our Stubstack account from people, you know, they constantly look for explanations as to what's going on on the Irish growth front. And the, the traditional measure of economic activity is gross domestic product, you know, which is the value of goods and services produced in the economy in a given time period. Um, and in Ireland's case, well, sorry, internationally, GDP, as I say, is the metric. But in Ireland's case, it is grossly exaggerated by stuff like aircraft leasing, contract manufacturing activity, 
and the transfer of intellectual property assets into the country by multinationals, particularly since 2015, and how those intellectual property assets are dealt with from a depreciation perspective. So the CSO has tried to adjust uh, for those um, strange things that happen in Irish GDP to come up with a measure called Gross National Income Star. And last year, uh, gross domestic product is estimated to have expanded by 12.2% and GNI star, this more realistic measure, by a still very credible 5.9%. But that 12.2% growth rate, and, and it was written up in the media in, in the sense that this is the country, and despite the small size of Ireland, this is one of the reasons why the Eurozone economy delivered positive GDP growth. That's what has put it onto the international radar. Uh, Gabriel Malouf was interviewed by the Financial Times in Brussels during the week. Um, and basically the argument thrown at him was that this growth in the Irish economy is phantom. And his response was that much of the growth of 12.2% comes from real factories with real people and much of it coming from big technology companies and big pharmaceutical companies. Um, basically, Paul Krugman came out and said he was talking rubbish. I paraphrase, but he certainly dissed what he was saying very, very strongly. And um, I think actually both have a semblance of truth in them. You know, there there is an element of Irish economic activity uh, that is very difficult to understand and to fathom. But the Irish were criticised for reporting these GDP numbers. But that criticism I do not accept because there is no choice. When you're reporting international statistics, it's true GDP, full stop. And Ireland has developed this alternative measure, GNI star, which does help us understand what's happening in the economy. But but the metrics here um, or the, the magnitudes are phenomenal. In 2021, for example, gross domestic product was 423.5 billion. OK, we had net factor outflows. That is basically the difference between what multinationals repatriate in profits to the home country and what Irish multinationals like Glambia operating overseas uh, repatriated their shareholders in this country. And so it's a net figure, but there was an outflow in 2021 of just over 102 billion. Okay, so when you subtract that from GDP, you're left with gross national product at 320.8 billion. And then, and this is really where it hits, when you adjust for those intellectual property assets, aircraft leasing and so on, um, GNI star comes in at 230.7 billion. So GDP falls from 423 to 230. Wow. Um, it's, 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 it's absolutely phenomenal. And, um, you know, some people would argue, and I was asked the question on the Substack account, um, that 102 billion of net factor outflows, you know, should we be trying to reduce that? Uh, I don't think we should actually, because those factor outflows reflect what multinationals are doing here. And you can talk about the phantom nature of Irish economic activity till the cows come home, but the reality is they are generating a lot of corporate tax revenues here. They are supporting a lot of direct and indirect employment here, and they are also supporting a strong level of economic activity. So trying to reduce those 
um, profit outflows, you know, would mean reducing the size of the multinational sector. And I just think as an economy, uh, that cannot be countenanced. Thank you for that, Jim. This is inevitably a subject to which we will come back to time and time again. But the numbers that you, you described there, the difference between these different measures of economic activity, the, the numbers are huge, aren't they? It's, it, 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 it is an extraordinary story. It can be quite a dry story. And I know people will sometimes ask us why we go on about this. But when you realise just how big the numbers are, that's the answer to why we go on about this. Jim, we should move on. We're running out of time, but it is the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin's special military operation, as he insists on calling it. The rest of us call it what it is, which is a, a war, an invasion of a sovereign territory in violation of the UN Charter, of which Russia is a member. The, U the, United, Nations passed, the United Nations General Assembly passed a general resolution overnight calling for Russia to withdraw because it is against the UN Charter to invade another country, another country's sovereign territory. China notably abstained, and it's China that I just wanted to mention in all of this context right now. Because we've had Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, talk about and warn China not to supply Russia with arms with its illegal invasion of Ukraine. And that's regarded as being what it says on the tin, which is, which is a warning. We had a very disturbing follow-up story from Germany this morning from a media outlet called Der Spiegel, and they have reported, without naming their sources, that a company in China, and they have named the company, is going to su supply initially 100 kamikaze drones to Russia, able to carry explosive payloads of up to 50 kilograms, so not insignificant. And that will be just potentially the start. More generally, China is a manufacturing, the, the world's manufacturing powerhouse. That's what globalization has meant over the last 20 or 30 years is that China can and usually does manufacture anything and its capabilities in arms manufacture matches its capabilities of manufacturing iPhones. They are the best. They can do it at scale. And if they are going to go all in in support of Russia, then that is a game changer. It is very serious, very consequential. It's the Cold War starting up at full volume again. It is a proxy war between the West and China and Russia aligned on the other side. Uh, it couldn't be more serious. I am surprised that the De Spiegel story hasn't gotten more legs today, actually. It is being more widely reported as the day is going on. I think people are being careful, A, because if it's true, it is so blooming awful, and B, it hasn't been confirmed anywhere. Uh, I wait to see what the Chinese themselves say about this, if they're going to say anything. Uh, there are lots of reasons, I think, perhaps why the markets, if, if, if the news had been that China's going all in, I think we'd have had a crash in equity markets and we'd have had the dollar going through the roof, flights to safety, safe haven trades being put on and all the rest of it. That hasn't happened by and large, because I think the hope is that this A is a non-story in its own terms and it won't be confirmed Perhaps if it is confirmed, it will only be 100 drones. And it was China's way of saying, look, we're here. But underlying all of this is, is the concern that China, when all this started a year ago, very clearly said to Russia two things, no nukes and don't lose. And the no lose thing, I think, is important here because having backed Russia in every way that it can without short of supplying arms, China now can't live with Russia losing. 
uh, it would be a real domestic blow to Xi Jinping's reputation within China and terrible for his Belt and Road Initiative that he is building out through countries in Africa, uh, Latin America and elsewhere. Uh, his attempts to spread the China message globally would be severely damaged. His credibility would be hurt if he had been seen to back a loser, if Russia loses. So that's why I think they, they don't want Russia to lose. I don't think the Chinese are too worried about Russia not winning. I think that if, if this was a stalemate that just went on for years and years, they would, that would be of less of concern to them. But Russia not losing, I think, is important to how China sees itself and its strategic ally. Having placed the bet on Putin a year ago, it cannot be seen to lose. And that's the concern I have that in the context of the De Spiegel story. So the conclusion I draw from that is that the situation has escalated, not for the better. We wait to see what happens. I remember that this day last year, the consensus, the overwhelming consensus uh, uh, with all of the military types, of which I am not one, was that the war would be over within three to five days. The overwhelming consensus today is that it's going to be years before it's over. I hope the current consensus is as wrong as the last one and that the Russians get kicked out this year. Because I think once we go into 2024, we're into US election year territory. And of course, I suspect the Republican candidates lining up to be nominated to be the Republican presidential candidate in the November election of next year. God, it comes around so quickly, doesn't it, Jim? Extraordinary. They're all going to compete with themselves for uh, cozying up again to Russia and uh, for saying that, for adopting an isolationist stance. And I think that is a real serious threat. So Ukraine has to prevail and it has to prevail this year. But the consensus is that they can't, they won't. So we shall see. Let's hope that that consensus is wrong. Wang Li's visit to Putin during the week has set the scene for this. And um, it, it was also lining up a visit from Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping to Russia um, shortly. And the Chinese have certainly expressed their strong solidarity with Russia. The Chinese peace plan is calling for Ukraine to make major concessions, uh, territorial concessions, and also not to join NATO. That is totally unacceptable from the perspective of the West or indeed from Ukraine. And, um, you know, it's it, it, it really is a serious, worrying situation at the moment. And we grew up in an era and i did politics back in my primary degree in ucd many years ago and we did the uh, nuclear politics was a big thing in the 80s of course um the cold war and so on um we're now back i think uh, the united states versus china will be the cold war of the next couple of decades and um it's definitely been notched uh, ramped up a notch because of what the Chinese are doing in Russia at the moment. So really worrying. And I, I kind of share your sentiment. It's quite amazing how relaxed everybody is about this, particularly um, financial markets, because potentially um, it has huge economic and political implications. Absolutely. And something else uh, closer to home that has huge implications, um, not on a global scale in the way that China, Russia and America are presenting to us at the moment. But we've run out of time to discuss the Northern Ireland Protocol. I'll lay down a marker and say that the latest news out of London is that Rishi Sunak has called what's called a three-line whip for the House of Commons on Monday, to, which means that everybody in his party has to attend. 
He's placed the cabinet on notice that they're expected maybe to meet over the weekend. So something is afoot. Uh, a lot of people are saying it's uh, Rishi Sunak shooting himself in the foot and that nothing will happen as it usually does in these circumstances. But we may get some news on the Northern Ireland Protocol to discuss at the beginning of next week, Jim, by the looks of things. And even if we don't, that in itself will be news worthy of discussion. So let's call it there. Have a great weekend, mate. And, and, and you, Chris. Have a good one. Speak to you next week. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 